Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Justin Logan. I'm the Director of Defense and Foreign Policy Studies here at the Cato Institute. It's my pleasure to welcome you to our book forum today for my colleague Ted Carpenter's new book, Unreliable Watchdog, um, the News Media and U.S. Foreign Policy. Um, the book shares not just thematic material, but also cover art material with a previous book of Ted Carpenter's entitled The Captive Press that looked at this question, why the media, the news media in the United States does such a poor job in informing Americans about U.S. foreign policy. So this is a, an expansion and variation on a theme, and I think it is its own commentary that a book about the media's flubbing foreign policy coverage is so darn thick. There's a tremendous amount of material uh, in there into which Ted gets. Um, Ted Galen Carpenter is Senior Fellow for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at Cato and previously had been Director of Foreign Policy Studies and Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at Cato. Um, he is the author of 12 books on international affairs before this one, um, and he received his PhD in U.S. Diplomatic History from the University of Texas. We're very pleased to have as a discussant on Ted's book and, and someone who can provide a great deal of his own insight into this question uh, of news media coverage of international security issues. We have George Beebe, who's the director of grand strategy at the Quincy Institute, just down the road here in Washington. Um, and he has a very interesting resume. He spent more than two decades in government as an intelligence analyst, diplomat, and policy advisor, uh, including as director of the CIA's Russia analysis outfit, um, and as a staff advisor on Russia Matters to Vice President Cheney. His 2019 book, The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral into Nuclear Catastrophe, reminder, that was a 2019 book, uh, warned how the United States and Russia could stumble into a dangerous military confrontation. Uh, he holds a BA in political science from Principia College and an MA in foreign affairs from UVA. So I think with that, I will turn the virtual microphone uh, over to Ted Carpenter to sketch out the basic layout of the book. Um, and then we'll hear comments uh, from George Beebe. And we encourage you to offer uh, questions via Facebook, the Cato website, YouTube, and on Twitter using the hashtag CatoFP, like foreign policy. So with that, I'll turn things over to Ted to give the basic book talk. Thank you very much, Justin, and my appreciation to George as well for being part of this uh, book forum. I chose the title of the book, Unreliable Watchdog, quite deliberately, uh, because it was my view that the free press is absolutely essential for the functioning of a, uh, of a good democracy, and that the press has an obligation to the public to be the public's monitor, its early warning system, not just of uh, outright misconduct on the part of government officials, but also to scrutinize policies, to see if those policies are deceptive, if they are uh, inept, counterproductive, that that's the obligation, the moral obligation that a free press has to the American public. And unfortunately, um, the performance level has varied a lot over the decades, but generally speaking, the news media have not done a particularly good job of informing the public, particularly on foreign policy and national security affairs. It generally hasn't done that great a job on domestic affairs either, but uh, in the foreign affairs arena, it's much worse. And there are two characteristics that keep repeating and that are very, very disturbing. One is instead of being the watchdog of government, it has become very often the press has become the lapdog of government agencies. They uh, simply circulate uh, barely rewritten official accounts of events taking place in the world. The other aspect that is, is troubling is the tendency to portray complex 
events in world affairs as a simple morality play. That whatever faction that the United States government is supporting is a, a tremendous representative of freedom and democracy, an exemplar. And whatever faction the United States government is opposing is the most villainous of villains. Well, world affairs are a lot more complicated than that, a lot more complex. And very often, the faction the United States is supporting in another country is not all that much better than the faction that Washington is opposing. Now, when we go through the, the, uh, the history of the media's relationship with government, uh, as I said, it varies a lot over the decades. Not surprisingly, uh, the collusion between media and government was at its greatest during the two world wars. That's to be expected. And it uh, was seen as patriotic by almost all journalists to be supporting US policy even if they might have some personal doubts about specifics. Thus, you had some uh, journalists in World War II who questioned the long-term uh, desirability of Washington's alliance with the Joe Stalin Soviet Union, but they weren't about to voice that very often while fighting was taking place. Unfortunately, that understandable uh, attitude of patriotism in wartime carried over into the post-Cold post-war period with the, uh, the start of the Cold War. And even though the United States was not engaging in active fighting most of the time, and certainly not a direct confrontation with the Soviet Union. But the collusion remained very extensive. Uh, for instance, an investigation by the committee headed by Senator Frank Church in the 1970s discovered that well over 200 journalists were on the payroll of the CIA. That doesn't say that uh, they were fellow travelers. They were actual agents. Uh, publications such as the New York Times, the Washington Post, CBS, uh, allowed the CIA to use their, um, their corporations as cover for um, for spies, for CIA operatives, uh, posing as journalists. To me, that was a very unhealthy relationship, and I think the church investigation showed that it was. And for a while um, after that, in part because of dis disillusionment about the Vietnam War, that sense among many journalists that uh, the government had been thoroughly deceptive uh, that, that, in fact, they'd been lied to, that led to a greater degree of skepticism in the 1970s and 1980s about U.S. foreign policy. There also may have been a partisan aspect in that, in that most of the time the, uh, the White House was occupied by a conservative Republican. Most journalists tend to lean uh, left, lean Democrat. But nonetheless, there was greater skepticism, a greater willingness to question assumptions, question policies. That came to an abrupt end with the Persian Gulf War in 1990. And we went back to the, the old um, formulation, the old uh, close relationship between press and government. And that continued, it has continued ever since. We have seen the press frankly used as a vehicle for disinformation on the part of government. We saw that with the lead up to the Iraq war uh, quite clearly, uh, where the press bought the myth put out by the Bush administration and its Iraqi exile allies that Saddam Hussein was involved in the 9-11 terrorist attacks and that Iraq had an arsenal of weapons of mass destruction and was poised to acquire uh, an arsenal of nuclear weapons. 
All of that was false. But the press bought it, the press circulated that to the American people, and that certainly had an effect on public opinion. It hasn't gotten any better since then. There was a bit of reflection among journalists about the performance with respect to the Iraq war, but it didn't carry over when the United States, uh, for example, tried to undermine the government of Syria, along with uh, an effort on the part of the some, some of the Sunni major powers, such as Saudi Arabia and Turkey, and portrayed the uh, insurgents trying to overthrow uh, Bashar al-Assad as freedom fighters and advocates of democracy. Again, the press circulated that disingenuous propaganda. We now know that several of the factions the United States was supporting in the Syrian civil war were staunchly, extremely Islamist. And very likely their rule, had they taken power in Damascus, would have been even worse than Bashar al-Assad's. Again, though, we see an unwillingness to question government accounts, to question the official narrative. And there's a great deal of hostility toward that minority of journalists who's willing to take on government accounts and debunk them. And that is one of the saddest things. Journalists who do that usually find their uh, reputations being smeared, uh, their careers being marginalized. And that's not a healthy development at all for the press, that if you're willing to be a mouthpiece for government policies, your career prospers. If you're an iconoclast, if you dare to do what should be the job of real journalists and question government accounts, you risk becoming irrelevant. We're seeing a similar pattern again with respect to the Russia-Ukraine war. Now, I think almost all Americans condemn Russia's aggression against Ukraine that uh, armed attack that has devastated a neighboring country is never justified. However, uh, the press showed a total unwillingness to look at the circumstances, all of the circumstances that led up to the Russia-Ukraine war, including Washington's highly questionable policy of expanding NATO right to the borders of Russia. And the willingness of several administrations to ignore rising warnings on the part of the Kremlin. That, for example, bringing Ukraine into NATO, either officially with membership or simply making it a NATO military asset, was, would cross a red line and would not be tolerated. Those warnings were issued repeatedly from about 2008 until the invasion in 2022, and yet U.S. officials ignored them. Where was the press in terms of covering these warnings? Where was the press in holding the U.S. government accountable that they ignored those warnings? And the consequences have been rather unpleasant, to put it mildly. I would like to think that members of the news media have learned their lessons and that we're going to see a better performance going forward. I certainly hope that's the case. But I think the American people have to cease their toleration of being propagandized. Remember the, the propaganda campaigns of previous international crises. I'm amazed at the number of people who will accept the notion that the government was deceptive in the cases of Vietnam, uh, Iraq, Libya, Syria, but somehow this time officials are not being disingenuous with respect to the Russia-Ukraine war. Well, that shouldn't be the default assumption. If we have seen a consistent track record 
of government agencies being less than truthful, then our default assumption should be they may be doing that again. And we have to view government accounts with skepticism. And if the media is simply regurgitating government accounts, we have to view the media's conduct with skepticism. That's what I hope will be the lesson. That's the point of Unreliable Watchdog, to generate a serious public discussion about the performance of the media and the willingness of the media to play a proper role in monitoring government activities and alerting the public of playing the role of watchdog and not lapdog. I'll close with that, and I'm sure George has some uh, major comments about that. Well, uh, I do, and uh, I want to thank uh, Ted and Cato for inviting me uh, today. It was a very easy uh, invitation to accept. I've long been a great admirer of, of Ted's work. I've, I've long stood in awe of just how prolific a, an author and a writer that he is. And uh, I want to congratulate him on this book. I think it's uh, exhaustively researched. Um, I would warn readers that they may well find themselves vigorously uh, nodding their heads as they read through it. Uh, and, and this, this could uh, uh, pose some, some danger <laughs> that they may get overexercised in, in reacting to what, uh, what they're reading as they go through. Um, I, uh, I want to make some comments on this book from a, a, a not very typical perspective. And that's the perspective of an intelligence analyst. Ted talked a little bit about the CIA, the way it has used media uh, over the years to try to, to shape uh, public opinion, uh, particularly overseas, trying to put out messages in what you might call an information war to try to, uh, to shape people's perceptions of what's going on, where truth lies in, in various situations. But there's another way that CIA interacts with media, and I would argue a far more important way, and that is a source of information. Um, people, I think, in the general public tend to imagine that the analysts and intelligence agencies look uh, almost exclusively at classified information things that are collected through non-public channels as a way of understanding what's going on overseas, the dynamics of, of uh, various uh, issues, um, and trying to ascertain where, where truth really lies amid uh, uncertainty. And although you know, much of that does in fact go on, the vast bulk of what intelligence analysts in the US government use to try to understand what's going on in, in uh, various parts of the world is public information derived from media. Um, and uh, it is very important for intelligence analysts to understand how to interpret what it is that they're reading in the media. And I began uh, my career uh, as an analyst of the Soviet Union back in the days when there was a Soviet Union. And I had to learn how to understand uh, Soviet uh, media publications, which were all state controlled. Um, everything that was published in the Soviet press went through the Soviet government uh, and uh, was very carefully crafted. But it was important to understand the perspectives of the, the state government um, and uh, as you got better at interpreting Soviet media as, as an analyst, um, you would start to understand that different uh, media organs, all of which were state controlled, tended to reflect different parts of the Soviet government. And in a very nuanced way, hinted at uh, some differences of opinion within the Soviet government. And you could become adept at understanding the dynamics of what was going on behind the scenes inside a closed Soviet by reading that media uh, in, in an informed way. 
Now, one of the things that changed in the Soviet Union when the Soviet Union broke up was that uh, that monopoly of state control over, over media was broken up and new non-state controlled media organs emerged in Russia in the 1990s. And as an analyst, it became critical to understand who owned uh, these new newspapers and television and radio stations, where they were trying to steer things uh, inside Russia, and how these private media organizations were part of a broader struggle over political power and economic power inside the new Russia. And you couldn't understand what you were reading in Russian media in the 1990s unless you understood the people that owned these organs and what they were trying to do in competition with one another. Now, why do I go into all of that? I think it's because um, I am struck today in reading uh, American media at how important it is to understand what's going on behind the scenes in efforts to shape public perceptions in the United States. And it's, it's, uh, it's not just the US government attempting to influence what our quote unquote free media are saying about things. Um, it's also that you have to understand who it is that is behind these media organs and what their agenda is that they're attempting to advance uh, in our public policy debates. Um, you can't understand where the Washington Post is coming from unless you understand who is behind the Washington Post, what is their broader agenda? Uh, unfortunately, that also is true of, of uh, the whole range of, of media in the United States these days. And we're starting to see uh, through what's being exposed uh, in collaboration between Silicon Valley uh, and uh, the U.S. government, um, how the U.S. government can use media to try to narrow the bounds of acceptable public discourse in the United States, to shape narratives that become critical um, in determining what U.S. policies can be on any given issue. Uh, and raise very profound questions, I believe, about uh, the, the way First Amendment uh, rights can be protected under our, our new uh, electronic media situation. Um, and um, I think these are issues that we're only beginning to be, be aware of and, and to, to start to grapple with. But I think these are issues that are absolutely fundamental to the functioning of our republic. Um, a couple of things that uh, Ted gets into in, in his book, which I, I very much agree with, um, the role of the media in informing uh, citizens so that they can make informed and well-considered choices um, about uh, where U.S. policies ought to be. Um, our system can't function effectively unless we have an informed citizenry that plays that role of, of helping to guide our government in its choices about foreign policy. So simply informing uh, citizens is, is a critical role of the press they've got to help establish where truth lies um, in, in various critical issues. Um, what has actually happened, for example, in Ukraine? Uh, what exactly has been done in terms of war crimes? To what degree can we be confident that uh, Russians, for example, are deliberately targeting uh, civilian institutions, hospitals, schools, and the like. Um, these are not easy questions to answer. I think it requires journalists to be careful about their methodology, their evidence that they're, they're uh, citing in trying to draw some judgments on these issues. And I think they, they have to, in order to try to get at truth 
approach these questions with a skeptical eye, recognizing that uh, simply taking the word of U.S. government officials who have an agenda, inevitably, in all of this, is not a sufficient basis for establishing where truth lies in a lot of these things. Um, second issue, which is enormously important, is, is the role of watchdog. <clears throat> it's, it's the role of overseer of the U.S. government, serving as a check and balance on power. This is something that is absolutely critical to the functioning of, of our republic, something that the Founding Fathers understood very well, was, was an essential element of our system, and, I, and something that I think uh, increasingly our media have fallen down uh, in, in uh, performing that function. And, and I think Ted's book does an excellent job of providing exhaustive uh, evidence in, in just how our media has failed to serve as this watchdog over power in the United States. Um, and that's clearly something that we have to rectify. Um, but one other point that uh, I experienced in government in, in moving from CIA on rotation uh, into the policy-making side of our government uh, to <clears throat> the State Department and White House and starting to think about um, not how do we analyze what's going on abroad, not how we understand the dynamics of those situations, but also what do we do about it? What should U.S. policy be in all of this? I learned very quickly that there were very clear boundaries uh, that limited what U.S. policy options really were on a lot of these issues. And those boundaries were essentially established outside of government, by our media, by the narratives that they advanced. And I think that is one of the most uh, important but least understood functions of the media. Um, providing uh, conceptual frameworks, narrative frameworks for making sense of the facts that uh, are, are being uh, disseminated uh, by our press. It's not just what are the facts, it's also how do I understand those facts? How do they fit together into a coherent narrative that allows uh, citizens to understand what's going on, um, but also allows our government to understand what's going on? And those narratives largely get established by our media, sometimes consciously, I would argue sometimes unconsciously, meaning people uh, in the media don't consciously juxtapose alternative frameworks for making sense of the facts in these situations. And, and I think that's a process that has enormous implications for the policymaking process inside government. If the vast majority of people have accepted a, a narrative, um, whether consciously or unconsciously, that is generated by our press, that greatly limits uh, what policy options are in fact viable inside of government. And I was uh, very much struck during my time uh, in the policymaking world by uh, how much the media uh, framed what was going on and, and very narrowly defined what we could actually do in the policymaking world in response to this situation. So I think uh, in some uh, Ted's book, I think, is enormously important. I would urge everyone to uh, read it and to, to wrestle with the issues that he raises in this book, because there are very few things that I think are more important than the role of the media in, in shaping these narratives and in, in helping to define where truth lies in all of this and in uh, establishing um, how government itself on the inside 
uh, understands and interprets what's going on overseas. Thank you very much, George, for those uh, remarks. Um, I'll remind you that you can submit your own questions, but I will usurp the uh, moderator's privilege here to uh, roll a rhetorical grenade into this discussion um, and do something I almost never do, which is empathize with TV news producers uh, and journalists who cover foreign affairs. And let me lay out what I would say if I were them in response to criticism uh, of them, which is that number one, the American public doesn't almost ever care about foreign policy. The United States is so secure that it can fritter away six or eight trillion dollars over a couple of decades, um, lose several thousand people and not get its hair terribly mussed. Um, so it's not as though we're going to lose Alaska or Florida if we make some mistakes and people have a kind of rational ignorance about this stuff. And so to get them as a, as a, a journalist who's interested in this subject matter, the morality play that Ted sketches out of the sort of Western with the black hat and white hat dueling out with tumbleweeds rolling across the, uh, 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 the tavern door there. Um, is what Americans want to read, right? Like, what if we have met the problem and it is us? That's what I would say and what I would sort of uh, provoke both of you with, which is to say, you know, maybe we're getting what we want. Maybe the problem is in fact what we want um, from coverage of foreign affairs. And a second question related to that, whatever else one chooses to say about him, the most prominent host of a conservative cable news program at present um, has been critical of US policy in Ukraine in important ways and persistently critical. And he, to his credit, has invited on many of the leading exponents of the administration's policy. And of course, most elite Republicans in Congress support the Biden administration's policy in Ukraine. So this leading conservative cable news host, whom I won't name, uh, invited on representatives, uh, Michael McCall, Mitt Romney, Lindsey Graham, to defend the policy that they were talking about um, to the New York Times and other places. And all of these individuals declined. Uh, the invitation to discuss the policy that they supported um, before the public. So maybe I talked about the incentives of journalists and the incentives of TV news producers, maybe the incentives of people who um, like foreign policies that are expansive and sometimes based on charitably misconceptions or uncharitably misleading caricatures of the world like the status quo exactly the way it is. They don't want to have debates, right? A presidential candidate who's winning an election never wants to debate because he has control of the election. And so if you're Lindsey Graham, is it the incentive to have as little debate about this as possible? And then the question becomes whose incentive is served uh, by forcing those debates? So maybe let's go to Ted and then, and then, uh, and then to George. Yeah, to some extent, uh the news media reading their audience and they believe uh, whether correctly or not that that's what the people want to see and hear. But I would also say that they have been responsible for conditioning that public for decades. So if their news media are now using the, well, the American people think in terms of melodramas, of villains and heroes, uh, they're partly responsible. The media are partly responsible for that phenomenon. In addition, I have no doubt that members of the, uh, what I would term the, uh, the foreign policy blob, that's not original to me, but the foreign policy establishment definitely does not want to debate at all, because I think there's a sense with some of them, at least, that they know their case is not terribly strong. And that there's a, if there's an honest debate in the media, uh, they're likely to lose. Now, Justin is right in pointing out that a certain uh, host of a cable news program, and I will name him, that's Tucker Carlson, uh, has a significant audience, does present uh, views contrary to the dominant narrative. Even so, um, 
his audience is still dwarfed by viewers who watch the CBS, NBC, ABC Evening News, and other programs. And those programs are almost uniformly um, echoing the dominant interventionist pro-military uh, narrative. Uh, so I think the American people have been conditioned to view world events in a certain way. And the media perpetuates that viewpoint. Um, I would uh, point out a couple of things on this question. One is, um, I'm not sure that um, these black and white good versus evil uh, narrative frameworks that are very commonly employed in our media are what the U.S. people want. Um, and, and part of the reason why I, I'm skeptical about that is looking at the polling numbers, at uh, how people regard the media. Um, their trust in the media is a historic nadir. Um, you know, I'm not sure what the what the most recent figures are, but but somewhere around you know 25 percent of the American people are saying that they have much confidence in uh, media reporting, and and frankly, I think that uh, that number uh, is a good reflection of how uh, me the media have in fact been covering stories. Uh, there's good reason for people to to not have a lot of confidence in the media. And, and um, I think a lot of people, a lot of Americans have enough common sense to recognize that uh, they've been sold a bill of goods on a lot of these issues over the years. It has turned out in retrospect that uh, truth uh, diverged quite sharply from what they were being told. And you, you don't have to look much uh, very deeply into Ted's book to see lots of examples of that, where we were told one thing and it turned out that that was not at all an accurate reflection of what was going on. And it doesn't take, you know, uh, a lot of insight over time to say, hey, wait a minute, what's been going on here? Uh, why? Um, you know, you can understand some mistakes. A lot of these issues are, are difficult, complex issues. It's easy uh, sincerely to get some things wrong. What is harder to explain is stepping on the same rake over and over and over again, year after year after year, and refusing to learn lessons from failure and to correct them over time. When, when that's the pattern that you're seeing, you start to be less generous in your assessment of what, what, what is happening, less likely to attribute this to well-intentioned mistakes and start to say there's something fundamentally wrong in, in the coverage. So I'm not sure that this is in fact what viewers and readers want. And I, I think the, the polling uh, information reflects that. Now, the other thing, when you, when you talk about Tucker Carlson um, and other media coverage, one of the things that is quite noticeable uh, for someone like me uh, that has changed from, you know, the way media used to cover things back in, in my early professional years to the present time, um, there was an effort uh, you know, years and years, decades ago, to try to appeal to a broad middle, uh, to um, on CBS, ABC, NBC, to incorporate alternative points of view, to provide for viewers an understanding of why reasonable people might disagree on some of these issues. That is no longer the case. Now we have a situation where the media are uh, creating products that are not designed to appeal to a broad, broad segment of readership and viewership, but rather to appeal to specific market segments. Um, and uh, in so doing, provide those market segments with information that they find congenial. 
that tends to reinforce pre-existing beliefs and, and tell them, hey, you're, you're very uh, justified in feeling the way you do about this issue. Um, the very little effort to appeal uh, across these segments. Um, and, and that is highly problematic. It, uh, it makes the readers in these segments tend to believe either uh, consciously or unconsciously that reasonable people can't in fact disagree on these issues, that people that disagree are simply poorly informed or you know, just irrational. Um, and that makes debate, policy debate, very difficult um, because you know, your tendency is to simply say, people that feel differently on this don't have a valid claim to being a part of the debate. They, they should be marginalized, canceled, um, kicked out of the public square because these are not legitimate points of view. And I think that kind of reaction you see on both left and right. And, and that hurts our country. It hurts our ability to function as a self-governing republic. And it, um, because a lot of these issues are complex, because they're difficult uh, policy matters to deal with, unless we have debate, unless we have the expression of alternative points of view in all of this, unless we have skeptics uh, engaging on where truth lies amid uncertainty and, and conflicting information, you're not likely to get fruitful policy outcomes on all of this. And I think uh, that goes a long way to explaining why US foreign policy over the last 30 years has failed so often. Uh, in fact, I think it's far easier to, to uh, uh, document failures over the last three decades than it is to document real successes. And, and part of it is because of the way our, our public square has changed uh, over this period of time. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I raised the example of Tucker Carlson, and I don't think it's a, he, he would get offended that I would say it's a show with a point of view. It sort of wears its, uh, its ideology on its sleeve, but it has, I don't know, 2 million viewers a night um, who tend to vote Republican, I think. Um, and so you have a variety of Republican legislators who are supporting a Democratic presence foreign policy who are ducking 2 million Republican eyeballs, or 4 million Republican eyeballs a night um, because they don't want to defend their views. They don't want to have to, to credit the idea that it's reasonable to disagree with or worry about um, the Democratic president's foreign policy. Um, I want to bring in a question from Donald Baldwin, and I'll take it and expand it a little bit. He asks, how much blame, Ted, you put on journalism schools? So he asks about sort of leftist indoctrination um, in journalism schools. And I don't have the data on how many journalists actually go to journalists, journalism schools. Um, but many of them who write about international security went to what I would call, you know, trade schools for IR, terminal master's programs, especially here in Washington. And I would say there's a certain amount of political indoctrination that goes on in many of those places. So what about the, are journalists arriving with a preconceived idea of this sort of cartoonish, reductive narrative, or are they absorbing it by osmosis over time, or is it a combination of the two? Yeah, I think it's definitely a combination of the two. They've been uh, educated, uh, many of them, in very similar ways to view the world in very similar ways. And even if they had somewhat maverick tendencies coming out of those uh, journalism schools, they learn very, very quickly that that's not a rewarding course to adopt once they get into the, the actual work world. That if you want your career to advance, don't rock the boat, um, much less try to sink the boat. If you do that, you will be the one who gets sunk. Uh, George raised a tremendous point about uh, the decline in public trust. Uh, Reuters uh, last year did a poll uh, of publics in 46 countries about whether they trusted the news media. 
and none of the countries had very high ratings on that. Uh, but what I found especially depressing is that the U.S. public ranked 46th in terms of confidence in the news media. So our public is more suspicious of the news media, less trusting than the public's in any of those other, uh, almost all uh, modern industrial democracies. Uh, that's, that's a depressing conclusion, but I think journalists have largely brought that on themselves with their poor handling of a lot of issues, domestic as well as foreign, but I policy, but I, I think uh, on foreign affairs, especially. George, did you have thoughts or should we keep the train rolling? Well, um, one of the things that I think um, is important to understand, um, you had mentioned uh, earlier, Justin, that um, the U.S. Uh, population generally doesn't care a lot about foreign affairs. You know, we're we're a highly secure uh, nation protected by two large oceans. We haven't really had to worry a lot about our national security over the years. Um, and uh, recently, I think, we've seen a, a situation where um, the news media uh, have greatly reduced their coverage of foreign uh, policy issues. Um, you know, years ago when I was a young professional, a lot of newspapers had a great number of uh, foreign offices. Um, you know, the, the Baltimore Sun had a, you know, a Moscow correspondent who was there on a permanent basis, you know, writing what was going on in the Soviet Union in Russia. Um, and um, what has happened over the years is um, most of these organizations have closed down uh, these, uh, you know, foreign um, desks. And they have begun to uh, rely increasingly on local stringers uh, or on what you could call parachute journalism. You know, there's a, a hot issue of the day going on. Let's send our team over to Serbia and do a series of interviews uh, and, you know, help people understand what's happening. Well, inevitably, when you approach things like that, you lose depth, you lose perspective, you, you lose the kind of, you know, fingertip feel for what's going on in society that you can only get through years of experience on the ground, uh, you know, long, uh, long-standing relationships with government officials, local people, uh, something that you, you can't get by parachuting in with a translator <laughs> who takes you around for a few days or a few weeks. Um, and and we, we all pay the price for that. Um, we're less well-informed about what's going on. And, and our government is less well-informed about what's going on because, um, you know, as I mentioned uh, in my, my opening statement here, our government analysts do in fact uh, depend to a great degree on foreign media coverage. And the degree to which that suffers actually hurts our, our own government's ability to understand what's going on in these countries. Great. Let me um, narrow in a little bit on Ukraine because it's a sort of uh, uh, the, the bear in the room here, if we can. Um, one of the things that I think is quite striking about the coverage and understand mass political understanding of the war in Ukraine was the near total reduction of complexity in uh, how we got here, right? So we just passed, uh, or are heading into rather, the 20th anniversary of the U.S. war in Iraq. And if you ask me, Justin, why did the United States invade Iraq? I could give you an edited volume. I could give you 10 or so thousand words. There were many cause, there were many reasons. There was the sort of permissive context of the post 9-11 craziness that many of us lived through. Um, there was a highly motivated 
dedicated ideological commitment among many members of the Bush administration to overthrowing Saddam Hussein. Um, there were liberal internationalists who didn't like the perception that Saddam... So I could go on and on and on and say all of these things contributed to the decision to invade Iraq. There wasn't just sort of one button that got pushed and the United States invaded Iraq. We've just passed the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and there is almost a lockstep consensus that Russia invaded Ukraine because of an entirely inscrutable ideological flight of fancy on the part of Vladimir Putin that goes back hundreds of years and has this romantic character about it of restoring lost lands, et cetera, et cetera. That ideology, that imperial revanchism is entirely divorced and has nothing to do with security fears whatsoever. And to suggest that it's somewhat more complicated than that, not that this is the United States fault, not that it's the West's fault, but that they're, they're, that it's multi-causal, that there are all of these contributions swirling around out there is just some, a way to get yourself written out of polite company. And there was just a quite striking example of this to me recently. The Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, um, gave an interview to The Atlantic magazine on the anniversary of uh, the war. Um, and Blinken says, we were engaged in intense diplomacy with Russia to try to prevent this from happening in both NATO and the OSCE, because of course, what we most wanted was to try to stop this. And unfortunately, when Russia's objectives and Putin's objectives became crystal clear, he says, it was never about NATO enlargement. It was never about some threat to Russia's security. It was all about Putin's vision that Ukraine should not be an independent country and should be absorbed back into Russia. Now, and I, and I think, you know, you'll be unsurprised that the editor of The Atlantic did not really grasp this and grapple with it and, and push back at all. Um, but it really, that view is as consensus of a view up and down Massachusetts Avenue here while I'm sitting as was the urgency of invading Iraq in 2002 and 2003. And I think it's quite striking, and I know both of you have done a tremendous amount of work on this. Again, not to say that the war is necessarily the West's fault, that the United States was the prime mover here, what have you, but that not only is this an ideological flight of fancy of Vladimir Putin's, but that it is also simultaneously completely inscrutable. You know, we have our ideologies. Our ideologies are products of things themselves, right? It could be the case that Putin's romantic imperialism was animated by fears of NATO expansion, but that has been written out of polite company and is not covered in the news media hardly at all. Is that, I guess the best way to put it is, does your view of how we've evolved over the last year jibe with mine or not? And to what extent is it an emblem of the pathologies that we've been talking about here for the past hour? Mental nuance very well and multiple causes. There's always this tendency to reduce things to this uh, simplistic explanation, a monocausal uh, answer for what but something bad has happened, why something bad has happened. And we, we've seen that before. I mean, no one looked at uh, the longstanding territorial uh, grievances of Iraq regarding Kuwait going back to British colonial times. Nobody bothered to look at that. With regard to the Balkans, no one in the media seemed to look at the longstanding tensions between Serbs and Muslims going back to the World War II period. Uh, so they wanted, again, that uh, that melodramatic explanation. It's just gotten worse. I think it's reached its apogee now with regard to the Ukraine issue and, and Russia's policy. The unwillingness to even consider the possibility that clumsy Western policies at least contributed to this tragedy. No, it's all because Vladimir Putin is a uniquely evil individual 
has these delusional um, ambitions to try to reconstitute the Soviet Union and to eliminate Ukraine as any kind of independent country. I'm not saying he doesn't hold those views, right. but to say that was solely the cause of the uh, Ukraine war is nonsense. And yet that's the narrative that the bulk of the media has uh, bought into. George, can you jump in here? I, I can only agree with that. Um, several years ago, uh, when uh, then President Donald Trump was uh, being impeached for um, misbehavior on, on the Ukraine issue, <laughs> um, I wrote a piece for the national interest called Group Think Revisited that uh, compared uh, the way uh, everyone marched in lockstep on the Ukraine war issue to uh, what was happening on Ukraine. And this was, you know, years before, obviously, the Russians invaded uh, Ukraine. But I, I identified uh, some, some common reasons uh, for the, uh, the uniformity of thinking um, that uh, essentially said, this is the narrative. Uh, anybody that uh, strays outside the bounds of acceptable conversation is illegitimate. Um, and uh, like in the case of Iraq, ignored uh, very important evidence that was uh, not congenial to the dominant narrative. Um, and the consequences of, of that are almost always failure of some kind. Um, and in, in the case of Iraq, you know, the failure has grown increasingly clear in retrospect with each passing year. And I would argue that uh, the war in Ukraine is an enormous failure. That does not mean that the United States is to blame for what happened here. Um, the, uh, the decision to invade was, was not an inevitable one. Uh, Vladimir Putin did have choice in all of this. It's, it's easy to envision that a different Russian leader might well have dealt with the situation in a different way. But I think Ted is absolutely correct. The media line that this was an entirely unprovoked uh, invasion that uh, originated solely from the pathologies inside Vladimir Putin himself um, and had nothing to do with uh, concerns about the European security order, Russia's uh, place therein, and uh, any concerns whatsoever that Russia might have had about the possibility of uh, the United States um, having a, you know, a military alliance of some form with uh, what Russia regards as you know, probably the most important country in the world from the point of view of their national interests, those have been completely ruled out of the discussion. And um, the, the, the implications of that, I think, are quite profound. Not only did they interfere in our ability to head this war off uh, prior to the invasion, to minimize the likelihood that this result would, would uh occur, but they also have profound implications for how the United States might find a solution to this war, because the implications of, of the narrative that has rooted itself so deeply in our public discourse is, well, you know, there's nothing we can do other than ensure that the Russians are defeated on the battlefield. Uh, they must be defeated. Uh, and, you know, um, any kind of uh, diplomatic uh, process here is, is essentially ruled out. Um, and I think that is highly dangerous because, you know, the, the possibility that we wind up in a direct U.S.-Russian military confrontation uh, are, are not insignificant. Uh, and, and one of the, the things I find curious about this narrative is, you know, supposedly Putin is um, you know, essentially an irrational actor with this insatiable desire to recreate the Soviet Union. But don't worry, he would not be so irrational as to use nuclear weapons. 
And, you know, nobody is sitting here saying, well, uh, those two things aren't exactly consistent with one another. But, you know, right. if you if you raise that question, of course, that only uh, shows that you shouldn't be part of the public discourse. <laughs> yes, our inscrutable, possible psychopathic adversary and what he perceives as a proxy war on his own border would never escalate uh, is a unique sort of uh, intellectual proposition that has maybe too much currency uh, in Washington. I want to thank Ted Carpenter and George Beebe for their discussion of Ted's book, Unreliable Watchdog, uh, the news media and U.S. foreign policy. I apologize. We had a bunch of questions in the queue to which I didn't have time to get, um, but please seek out the book at fine booksellers nationwide. And thank you for your attention this afternoon.